God, thank you for this chance to be here and for this chance to open your word and to learn from this story in the Old Testament of the prophet Jonah. Uh, We honor moms today. We celebrate them. And we ask you uh, to teach us as we read from your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So Jonah chapter 3, if you've got your Bible today, Jonah chapter 3 is where we're going to be, and you can turn there. We'll get there in in just a bit. But I want to start in sort of a strange way today. We're going to start with a bit of movie trivia, okay? And so I have a movie that does in some way tie in with the message today. This is an old movie. This is an older movie. Um, So I'm going to read a line from the trailer, and then I want you to see if you uh, know the movie. And if you think you know it, just shout it out, and there's no points for getting it right or for getting it wrong. Um, So here it is. He was raised in the land down under, where a man thinks on his feet and speaks with his fists, and lives by his wits. A legendary figure about to encounter a world more treacherous than any he has ever known. Crocodile Dundee. Dundee. How many of you say Crocodile Dundee? You are correct. Crocodile. Okay, I've got the picture even. One of, it's a classic movie, and I did some research on it this week, almost universally hated by critics. (laughs) So did not do well with the critics, but kind of a classic movie. And if you know the story, there's this guy, Mick Dundee, right? And he is a legendary figure from the outback, and he has contended with strange beasts in the wild, crocodiles and what have you. But his greatest challenge is when he gets to the big city. And so he, there's all sorts of like classic scenes from this movie. He confronts a mugger at one point and has this sort of classic line where he says, that's not a knife. Right, this, this is, an, he, he, uh, he tries to talk to people on the streets of New York City, which doesn't go, like, introduce himself to each person. Uh, he, he handles a pickpocket. Um, there is a, there's a great line where Richard Mason says, uh, New York City, Mr. Dundee, home to seven million people. And he says, that's incredible. Imagine seven million people all wanting to live together. New York must be the friendliest place on earth. Um, And so, (laughs) so one of the things we learn is like, there's some misconceptions about cities, right? And, you know, he doesn't really understand how cities work. And it's one thing to contend with strange beasts in the wild, but it's another thing to go to the big city. And there's going to be some connections there with with the story of Jonah um, this week. Cities can be um, scary, uh, for some people, and I know this is a picture of another great city I have, um, the great metropolis of Bartlesville, and the skyline, in quotes, of Bartlesville, and uh, there's a story from the 1960s, the university that I teach at is, is now called Oklahoma Wesleyan University, but in the 1960s, some smaller schools merged to create what would then become Oklahoma Wesleyan University. One of them was a small school in Kansas called Miltonvale. Um, and um, the story goes that some of the faculty members from Miltonvale drove to Bartlesville to this new place where the school was going to be, right? And they crested the hill west of town. So the angle is kind of wrong, but imagine cresting that hill. And it's the 1960s, so at least one of the tallest buildings you know, wasn't there yet, right? 
but they saw this skyline and they said to each other, we are not sending our kids to the big city. <laughs> we are not coming to the, it's going to corrupt them, right? And they didn't, they didn't come, right? The big city of Bartlesville was like, it was a, like a scary place. Cities can be um, scary. They can be foreign. I remember moving from Bartlesville, Oklahoma to Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where I did my graduate work, and there's a little bit of culture shock um, getting to uh, the big city. And so the question I want to ask today is, uh, what about Jonah's trip to the big city? Uh, his trip, he finally makes it to Nineveh, this place that he's been running from. And what can we learn from his trip to the big city um, that is important for us as, as Christians? Jonah's trip to the big city. So Jonah chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along or the words will be up on the screen. Verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is God's word. So you know if you've been with us in the last couple weeks that we've been in this series on the book of Jonah. And in the first week, Pastor Rod talked about Jonah on the run and in the boat, on the boat, as, as God shows up to this prophet, Jonah, and he says, I want you to go and preach to this foreign culture, uh, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, the enemies of Israel. And if you know anything, if you remember Pastor Rod's message, he talked about how this was the most violent, wicked, pagan foreign culture on the face of the earth uh, and, and how God calls us to go not just to people we like or people who look like us but to all people and I think it's personally I think it's pretty cool how Pastor Rod and his family have modeled that he's in North Africa right now with his son who is a missionary there in a, in a Muslim culture and, and so God calls Jonah to do that he calls us to do that but Jonah runs and he runs not because he's afraid that like something might happen to him, 
but because he's afraid that God might actually show mercy to these people that he hates. And so he runs. That's week one. Um, Last week, week two, we talked about Jonah not on the run, but inside the fish. And we talked about um, when we are forced to face the consequences of our actions, how should we um, face those consequences? What should we do? And we learned some lessons from Jonah on that. And so this week, in week three, we're looking at Jonah not on the run, not in the fish, but in or approaching the big city and saying, what do we learn from Jonah's trip to, to the city? And so three things this week, if you've got your outline there on there, a God of second chances, a paradox of preaching, and then thirdly, a picture of repentance. And so I want to start with a God of second chances. We serve a God of second chances. It, verse one of the passage, it says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And maybe you just want to underline where it says a second time. Uh, Because I don't know about you, but one of the things I'm glad for is that we don't serve a God who's just like comes to us once and then if we like push back or rebel or whatever, that's just like one and done, right? That you're just like, yeah, you know, sorry, you missed your chance, right? God is a God of second chances, and oftentimes third chances, and and fourth chances. Jonah disobeys, he runs, and God isn't isn't done with Jonah. God comes to him a second time. And in many ways, it reminds me of how for parents, and maybe for moms especially, since this is Mother's Day, um, how many times do you have to say the same thing before it stands any chance of being obeyed. And like my wife and I this week, we're talking about how many times in the course of the day she says, pick up your shoes, right? And it's just like, oh, and like you start to seem like a crazy person because you start, what are these, right? Shoes, where do they go? Like, not here, right? Why do we have 17 shoes, none of them that match any of the other shoes, in various places um, in the house. And you don't have to say it one time. You don't have to say it two times. You have to sort of keep coming back if you want to teach um, children. And thankfully, God is a God who keeps coming back to many of us, not just one time, but he's a God of of second second chances. He, He comes to Jonah a second time. And for me, one of the things that stands out in the passage is the sense of sort of like when this encounter happens because the very first word in the passage we just read in in Jonah chapter 3 he's just been vomited up on the shore according to chapter 2 from the fish and then it says then then the word of the Lord came to Jonah and the senses like the connotation of that word is that at least for me is there's a sense of like immediacy to this that God isn't, he doesn't let Jonah just go back to his house and go back to his life, or he doesn't let him just sort of sit there and wallow in his, in his shame of the fact that he's a disobedient prophet and he smells like fish guts and, and he's sort of covered in the evidence of his betrayal, but like right there on the shore um, while Jonah is sitting there in a heap faced with the evidence of his failure, God says, um, hey, 
get up. We're not done yet. I've got something for you. Go to Nineveh. Right, right, um, right then, God comes to him. C.S. Lewis has a great quote, uh, and he's talking about this, about like how when we mess up, sometimes the tendency is to, to give up and to wallow in sort of shame or in self-pity. But he has this quote from a letter that he wrote to a lady by the name of Mary Neelan on January 20th, 1942. He says, No amount of falls will really undo us if we keep on picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. But the bathrooms are all ready the towels put out, and the clean clothes in the airing cupboard. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and give it up. It is when we notice the dirt that God is most present in us. It is the very sign of his presence. And so here's Jonah. He's covered not just in dirt, but I imagine sort of the slime of the fish and the stench of the sea. And, and, and he's sitting there, and God comes to him right then and says, um, get up. Get up. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not done with you. Go to Nineveh. He's a God of second chances. Lewis seems to say that one of the things that can ruin us is just this to give in to the shame of our failures instead of, uh, instead of getting up. And psychologists talk about the difference between guilt and, and shame. And they're oftentimes connected. They kind of go together. But guilt, essentially, is you feel guilty for things that you've done. And the focus is on, like, the action. So I stole, and so I'm guilty of thievery, right? But with shame, the focus is, is not just on what I've done, but on what I am. And so it's not just that I stole, it's this sort of sense that I am a worthless thief and everybody knows it. And guilt can be atoned for either by, you know, a punishment or some sort of making amends, but shame can be more um, tenacious and it clings to us in our minds, almost in our marrow, because we feel like we're failures and we just want to sit there and, and sort of sulk in it. And so God comes along to Jonah in his shame and he says, uh, get up, get up. I'm not, I'm not done with you. Uh, he's a God of second chances. And maybe the second thing we could say or the next thing we could say about this is that he's a God of second chances for the religious prophet and for the rebellious city. He's a God of second chances, both for Jonah, who's like the hyper-religious, sort of judgmental person, and he's a God of second chances for Nineveh, this wicked, rebellious city. And so, if you want like a New Testament um, analog to this, it's the parable of the prodigal son, where here's a God who loves both the elder brother who's self-righteous and judgmental, right? Sort of like Jonah is toward Nineveh. And the younger brother, who has been rebellious and disobedient. And he wants them both to have a second chance. He wants them both to have 
uh, a second chance. And Jonathan Acuff is a Christian humorist, and he writes a book called Stuff Christians Like, and there's lots of really funny things, you know, stuff Christians like. And one of the things he says, you know, stuff Christians like is um, being judgmental towards people who are judgmental, um, which is sort of ironic, right? That you're like, those fundamentalists, they are so judgmental, right? You've heard they don't like dancing, right? No, they all dancing. They hate dancing. Uh, they hate movies, too. Uh, and so you get really judgmental about people who are judgmental, right? And in the passage, they both get a second chance from this God, the, the city that is sinful and rebellious and the prophet who is this sort of self-righteous um, prophet. They both get a second chance. And if you had to sort of like distill this into something that is super like relevant for you, um, you could say it this way. You can't welcome God's grace for yourself while withholding it from other people. You can't welcome God's grace for yourself while withholding it um, from other people. And, and Jonah is forced to realize that he needs grace and, and this city needs grace too, but you can't welcome it for you while, while withholding it from other people. Jesus talks about this. He tells the parable of, uh, of the, the king who forgives the debt, this massive debt from this nobleman who owes him, and then the nobleman goes out and refuses to forgive this tiny debt from someone who owes him, and he says it doesn't work that way, right? Um, it, with forgiveness, with God, uh, if you give none, um, you get none, right? Jesus says, in the same manner that you forgive others, so also your heavenly Father will forgive you. And so you can't withhold grace from others uh, while um, asking for it yourself. God is a God of second chances. Uh, we could flip this around too. Because for some of us, the problem is not that we withhold grace from others. For some of us, the problem is that we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. You're like, well, I can forgive my kids all day long, but me, it's me that I have a hard time forgiving. And, and for some of us, that goes with like a sort of perfectionistic streak that you feel like you have to be perfect, right? And we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. And if we're really honest, like what the problem is, and this sounds really harsh, if that's you, um, if you can't forgive yourself, the problem is that you've sort of made yourself God. You've sort of made yourself God because your opinion has become bigger than God's opinion on whether or not you can be forgiven. And God is a God of second chances, both for the prophet and, and for the people, for the religious and, and the non-religious. He's a God of second chances. Maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe especially on Mother's Day, we need to hear that. Number two, number two, a paradox of preaching. What we learn in this passage, a paradox of preaching. Verse four, it says this, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and proclaiming, this is his message, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown end quote. And the Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites believed God. And there's this 
very odd thing in the book of Jonah. Because Jonah is a prophet. It's a prophetic book. And if you read all of the other prophetic books, there are just pages and pages of what they call oracles. The oracles that the prophets deliver. And the prophets are creative. And they are winsome. And they use like um, stories and parables and songs and poems and object lessons to try to like get their point across. They really want people to hear this message and so they do like crazy, some of them do almost like street theater. It's almost like performance art, right? The prophet Isaiah, it says, goes about naked for a year, right? Awkward. Um, and the prophet Jeremiah smashes a big pot in the middle of the temple and uses it an analogy, right? They do these incredible things because they want people to hear the message and they're winsome and they're poetic and they're creative and they're compelling. And in Jonah, the oracle is five words in the Hebrew. And basically all he says is he walks into town and he says, it's going to burn. <laughs> Forty days, it's all going to burn, right? It, it, he doesn't even give them like an out. He doesn't even say like, hey, if you repent, maybe. He doesn't, he doesn't give an option, right? And he just says, it's going to burn. Forty days, then it was going to be overthrown, right? And the weirdest thing happens. People just begin repenting, right? To this short, sort of like, not particularly compelling message, right? And you get to think that like in, in other prophets, if they're like watching this, you know, like if there's ever like a replay of prophetic events in heaven, you know, Isaiah is like, really, dude? Really? Like I did everything and no one believed me, right? And, and you, five words and people are like, you know, lining the altars, right? There is a, there's a paradox of preaching, and one of the paradoxes of preaching is this, that the success of the message is not dependent upon, it does not hang upon the skill or the perfection of the messenger. The success of the message does not hang upon the skill or the perfection of the messenger. Um, one of the things we're gonna learn in the next chapter, next week, is that Jonah even after being inside the fish and even after obeying God, it's a sort of like begrudging obedience. It's, it's not, he's not happy about it, right? You get the sense that even when he does deliver this five-word message, he's doing it almost through like clenched teeth, right? And yet there's this unexpected result from this imperfect um, message. The success of the message doesn't hang upon the skill or the perfection of the messenger. And, and that's true, um, it's true today. Um, there are all these reasons why this message should not have succeeded. If we're just, just sort of thinking rationally why Jonah's message should have failed. Um, the first one is the nature of the audience, right? One of the first things we tell, you know, preaching students is, you know, know your audience, right? And so the nature of the audience, and Pastor Rod said, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, the most brutal, wicked, pagan nation on the face of the earth. And he likened them, um, they invented crucifixion, by the way, right? Um, he likened them to almost like ISIS, right? 
And, and so the scenario here is, imagine you, know, you go to Mosul or to Crete or to some place in Syria where ISIS is in control, right? God says go, and for some reason you're feeling obedient, right? And you go and you say, hey, just got to let you know, I come with a message from the God of Jews and Christians, right? Like, how do you think that's going to go, right? It doesn't end well for you. Um, the nature of the audience says this should not end well. It would be like, I told some guys earlier, it would be like going to the Oklahoma Cattlemen's Association and saying, greetings from PETA, right? <laughs> not going to go well. The nature of the audience says it's not going to go well, and yet, and yet it does. The, the nature of the message says it shouldn't go well. He doesn't even give them like what you should do, right? Step one, repent. Or, you know, maybe God will be merciful. He doesn't even give them an out. He just says, 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed, right? It's not winsome. It's not compelling. It's five words in the Hebrew. The nature of the message says it shouldn't work, and yet, and yet it does. Lastly, the heart of the messenger. The heart of the messenger which would lead you to believe that this probably isn't going to, to work well. Oftentimes we, we believe, and rightfully so, rightfully so, that God honors um, the preacher if the preacher's heart is in the right place, right? And like I said, one of the things we learn um, in the next chapter is that Jonah's heart really isn't even still in the perfect place. Even still he's... He, he doesn't really want these people to repent. He, he's imperfect. Not only his message, but he himself is, is imperfect. The heart of the messenger. Um, there's a, a Bible scholar by the name of Phyllis Tribble, and she has this quote about the passage. It, it won't be up on the screen, but I'll just read it for you. She says, The short speech that Jonah uttered illuminates disjunctions among preacher, text, and hearers if Jonah intended the destruction of Nineveh, he used ambiguous language, as indeed language often is. The Ninevites then exploited the ambiguity, and they chose to hear his destructive intention not as an absolute, but as an opportunity for repentance. In effect, the listeners took control of the words away from the preacher, and they overturned their meaning. The congregation found in the preacher's text the possibility of deliverance. And I would say not just that the, the hearers overturned it, but that the Spirit of God overturned it. The Spirit of God used it despite all of the imperfections in Jonah and in his, in his delivery. And believe me, I... Um, you may not believe this, I teach a class called preaching. Um, <laughs> and, and so, like, I care about thoughtful preparation and delivery, and I try to be thoughtful and to work hard and to prepare well. Um, but the reality is that there is a mystery to how God uses messages and messengers. There is a mystery to it. It is not just about who has the slickest delivery and, and whose heart is, is in the right place. There's a mystery to how God uses messages and messengers. And this can be incredibly good news, right, for those of us who are trying to point people to Jesus. Because I don't know how many times um, 
over the past, you know, however many years I've been preaching, that I've preached a message and I walk, I'm like, I finish, I say amen after the prayer and my next thought, it was, that was horrible. <laughs> I don't even know what I was trying to say and I made it, right? Like I, like I have this image of there's a, there's a, a statement from the movie Billy Madison where a guy says, at no point in that rambling, incoherent answer did you say anything that even remotely approached a rational thought, right? Uh, I award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul, right? And like I've felt that after a message before, right? They're like, that was horrible. I don't even know what I was saying. And, and more than once, somebody walks up to me um, weeping and says, like, that was so helpful. Like, that just, like, that was, like, the most helpful thing I've heard. And I'm, I'm thinking, like, like really? Because like, sometimes you think it's, like, a pity, a pity thanks, you know? Like, thanks, preacher. That was great. And then you're just like, yeah, it was horrible. Um, but, like, I, there is a mystery to how God uses messages and, and messengers. And it is not all about just some sort of slick delivery or some genius preparation. He uses broken vessels and garbled, stammering tongues to do his business. Paul says, man, I am imperfect. I, am the, I should be the least of all apostles, right? And yet God uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. There's a mystery there's a Miss Jonathan Edwards, great preacher, 18th century, terribly imperfect dude, but great preacher. And the story goes in the Great Awakening in the 18th century, he's this, he's this egghead intellectual professor. He's not gregarious, he's not entertaining, he's not funny, he's a professor like me. And he's incredibly nearsighted. He can only read his manuscript if he's about you know, this far from the page and he only preaches with manuscripts which results in him standing with his face about this far off of the lectern and reading his sermons. And the stories would go that Edwards would be preaching at these great gatherings in New England and he would look up from his manuscript and see people weeping and wailing and repenting and he would get very nervous because like that's not his personality at all, right? He's like been transported into this charismatic gathering and he's like the least charismatic guy in the room and he would get nervous and just go back to sort of reading his manuscript and God would use it to awaken a nation. This sort of strange mystery of messages and, and messengers. And so here's why this matters, right? Um, because it doesn't just matter for me as a preacher, um, it matters for all of us because you are called to be God's messenger. Paul says we are his ambassadors as if God is making his appeal through us and he's not just talking to paid preachers. He's talking to everybody. You are called to be God's messenger. But the problem is many of us, myself included, have a long list of reasons why we are not qualified to speak. I don't, I don't know enough Bible well, they're going to ask a question that I don't know the answer to. Which, by the way, you know what you say if you don't know the answer to a question? Like, I don't know. 
I'll get back to you. I'll ask somebody else, right? We have all these reasons why we're not qualified or why we can't be the messenger. We don't know the message well enough or like, I have a past. Like, I couldn't point people to Jesus because, man, they know what I've done, right? And if you read the Bible, you know that that excuse just totally fails, right? Because God uses murderers. He uses adulterers. He uses thieves. He uses liars. He uses cowards, right? Um, It's like he's in the business of using people who have lots of reasons why they shouldn't be the messenger. You are called to be a messenger. And so the good news is the message doesn't have to be perfect. Jonah's definitely isn't. You don't have to be perfect. Jonah definitely isn't. And God can use you. He can use you in ways that, to be frank, like I won't be able to communicate to your coworkers, your kids, your friends with the same um, ability or authenticity that you can, okay? And so the the paradox of preaching is not just some unfathomable mystery, it's actually an encouragement that ought to lead us to to two things, and that is to, to profound humility, because if this message goes well, it's not because I'm just some genius, right? Um, it's, it's the spirit that does works in people's heart. It's, to quote Paul, it's God who makes it grow. I just sort of throw the seed out there. Uh, it ought to lead us to profound humility, but it also ought to lead us to, to boldness. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to have a degree in Bible or preaching. Um, I can point people um, maybe with stammering lips and trembling hands to Jesus. And God can take that, um, that imperfect message and use it. That's the, that's the paradox of, of preaching. And, it, and if you need a bigger excuse, uh, Numbers 22, right? God uses a donkey <laughs> to preach, right? His message in the story of Balaam. It's the one Shrek verse in the entire Bible. And a donkey pulls it off. So if God can use a donkey, if God can use Jonah, God can use you. It's the paradox of preaching. Number three, and lastly, we get in this passage a picture of, forg- of repentance. A picture of repentance. In verse five, the words will be up on the screens. It said, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence, and who knows God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. We get a picture in this passage of what repentance is, like what true repentance is. And yes, God is a God of second chances. Yes, he uses imperfect messages and imperfect messengers. Um, But all of that is directed towards this, this repentance on behalf of the people. And, and we should probably say that the only 
Christian response to sin is repentance. There is only one right response when we are confronted with our sin. And that right response is repentance. It's not to sort of sweep it under the rug. It's not to, to blame or to pass the buck. It's not to just say, well, isn't it great that God is gracious and just sort of go on as if nothing happened. The only right response to sin is repentance. And if you're confronted with your sin and that causes you to do anything other than repent, then you've misunderstood the nature of the gospel, the nature of God's grace. Um, Paul deals with this in his letters and he talks about one objection being, well, if you know, grace abounds in the face of our sin, why not go on sinning all the more, right? Because God's grace is big and deep and wide and so, you know, you only live once, right? And, and he says that's, if, you've, if you're thinking that way, you've misunderstood the nature of grace. You've, to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you've cheapened grace. You've, you've cheapened it. Um, but because grace is free, but it is never cheap. It, it costs God his son. And so repentance in the passage, some, some takeaways about repentance. Um, maybe the, the first thing we could say is that leaders set the tone. And the passage takes great pains to emphasize that the king of Nineveh responds. And the king himself gets off the throne and he sits down in the dust and he puts on sackcloth. He takes off his royal robes and he puts on sackcloth and he decrees that the whole city um, ought to repent. Even the animals, right? You know you're bad when your dog needs to put on sackcloth. Like, you know you've done wrong when even the dog needs to be sorry. Um, and so the donkeys and the cattle, and they all have sackcloth on the animals. It's this sort of like um, over-the-top sort of picture. Leaders, just like the king of Nineveh, have to set the tone. Um, and the reality is, this is true of churches, of companies. It's true of nations, if you read the Old Testament, that every culture, to a certain extent, will take on the character of its leadership. And that can be really good news, or that can be really bad news. Um, but if you're a leader long enough, your culture or your company or your circle or your family will begin to sort of take on the character of, of the leadership. And so as a leader, if you're a parent, if you're a if you're a small business owner, if you're a boss, or if there are people serving under you, one of the questions that, that has to be asked is, um, am I developing a culture of repentance? Am I inculcating, am I developing a culture where we own our mistakes? We don't like wallow in shame or whatever. We, we own our mistakes and we we repent. Am I developing that kind of culture? Or am I developing a culture where we sort of ignore it, or we pass the buck, or we blame, or we deceive, right? And this is difficult as a parent because it means that I get to repent to a five-year-old, right? I get to repent to people who aren't even potty trained yet, right? I get to say, 
Um, I need to say, look, Daddy's sorry. Daddy lost his temper. That whole thing with the shoes, it, you know, wasn't as big of a deal. Uh, like, I overreacted. You do need to put your shoes away. But, like, we, as leaders, as parents, as business owners, we have to develop a culture of repentance. Because for good or for ill, our culture, our circle of influence will begin to take on our character traits. And, and I say this in all honesty, one of the things that I am most impressed about, and it's been this way from the very beginning, about Grace and about Pastor Rod, and I'm not just saying this because he might listen to the podcast, hi Rod, um, <laughs> is that Rod is a, I mean, he's a very learned guy, he's a bright guy. He's a good communicator, but he is, is humble, he is kind. I never have gotten the sense that he somehow thinks he's better than other. I, I love um, the sort of integrity and humility that comes out of his character, and it bleeds into the fabric of the community, and good things grow up from that, right? And so as leaders, we need to recognize that. It starts with the leadership. Leaders set the tone in repentance. Number two, the repentance in this passage is sincere and it is serious. You get the sense that they, for somehow, they've grasped, they mentioned that they've, they're repenting of their violence. This was a violent culture. Something has been, like the veil has been torn away and they've realized the, the horrific nature of their violence and their sin and they're sincere and they're Serious. Even the animals get the sackcloth, right? Um, and we probably need to clarify this because it's important that this is not just like all a big show, right? The sackcloth and the throwing the dust. Like if I've messed up, I'm probably not, like the best thing is probably not for me to put on sackcloth, throw dust all over myself and walk inside to my wife and say, sorry, right? Um, if it's just a show, then Jesus says, I don't want it, right? He says, do not do your works of righteousness before men to be seen. Do not make your prayers like those of the Pharisees that are long and flowery and, you know, in front of people. He doesn't want to show, but he does want um, sincerity. It's, it, you get the sense it's not this sort of like with my five-year-old where it's sort of like, tell your sister you're sorry, and she basically just says, sorry, and then just walks away. <laughs> or you've gone to great pains to even make your apology clear in the fact that it is in no way an apology, right? Um, he wants sincerity. He wants serious repentance, even though it's not about some, making some big um, show about it. It's sincere. And then lastly, the repentance results in life change. It results in a change of life. Verse 10 says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. How they turned from their evil ways. In the Greek, in the New Testament, the word repentance is the word metanoia. And it literally means a, a change in thinking or a change in direction, a change of mind. It's not just this sort of verbal, sorry, it's, it's an actual change of direction. It implies an actual attempt to live differently. And that's not to say you somehow earn 
um, forgiveness with your actions, but it is to say that if it's sincere, it ought to be connected to an actual change in your directions. It says, how they turned from their evil ways. When God saw that, he relented. It results in an actual change in your actual behavior. And so maybe today the question is this. Um, in what area of my life do I need to repent? In what area of my life do I need to just be honest, maybe with my spouse, and say, look, I've, I apologize for this. I've realized that I've been doing this, and I'm sorry. I, I want to I do better. Uh, in what area do, do I need to repent? And that's not a wallowing in shame, it's not, you know, but it is a sincere aspect of the Christian life. A picture of repentance, a paradox of preaching, and a God of second chances. If we were going to tie up every single one of these passage, uh, parts of this sort of sermon and say, well, what does it lead to, right? What does it lead to? Um, it leads to, in one sense, exactly what Jonah was called to do in the passage, and that is to go. To go. In some ways, I'm convinced that like one of the most sacred parts of the church service is when we um, go. We're called to go, and not just to, to attend and to come in. My, this is Mother's Day, so it's fitting that I use this as a conclusion, but my very first sermon, which my mom has video evidence of, um, was when I was about three years old, four years old. Um, and I, uh, I have been shown this video to shame me, I think. Um, so I'm in the living room after church. My dad's a preacher, still have my church clothes on, pastel bow tie, white shorts, very masculine. And, and I stand up on a chair holding a Bible and I just yell repeatedly, go to Nineveh, right? pronouncing it horribly every time, just over and over, go to Nineveh. And my sister's in the background like doing the music or something. And, uh, and that's it. Like that's my first sermon. And so I thought on Mother's Day, like what would be more apt than to dust off my very first sermon and to implore you to go, to go and deliver a message of a God of second chances, to deliver that message in in spite of the fact that you as the messenger are imperfect and the message you give will be flawed and God can still use it and he can bring about actual repentance. Go to Nineveh. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this strange and ancient story of an imperfect messenger, Jonah. And we rejoice in the fact that you are a God who gives us second chances. And we pray that we would respond to that when you call. Lord, I pray that we would go and deliver a message of grace to people who need to hear it. That we would be bold and humble as we just sort of point people to you. Lord, if Necessary, I pray that we would repent so that we too might preach a gospel of repentance. And Lord, more than anything, I pray that we would go this week and not only be hearers of the word, but doers.
Uh, may we go and may we tell others of your love, your grace, your gospel. In Christ's name, amen.